Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And I'm your host, Sam Mickey. And this week on the show, I'm really excited to welcome Tequila Chunyapa. Tequila, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be part of anything Mary Evelyn and John do. So I'm here. <laughs> That's exactly what the podcast is about, for sure. Um, so for folks who don't know you uh, already, just a little introduction. You're the director of the LOCA Initiative at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which supports faith-led environmental efforts uh, locally and around the world through collaborations with faith leaders, religious institutions uh, on environmental protection, sustainable development, climate change, just all the really big, messy issues of the day. Um, you also uh, founded and directed Sacred Earth, an acclaimed faith-based conservation program at the World Wildlife Fund uh, for about five years there, 2009 to 2014. And then you also helped establish Koryuk, a Tibetan Buddhist eco-monastic association uh, in the Him uh, Himalayas, under the auspices of His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa. So pretty amazing work uh, at the intersection of Buddhism and the environment. So I want to hear as much about all that as possible. To start with, how did you get into the world of Buddhism and environmentalism and that intersection between them? Because it's not always intuitive for people. Sometimes those are very different worlds, but for you, they very much come together. Yeah. And I think I have two kinds of answers for that question. You know, the first is I come from the Himalayas. I come from this really small place called Sikkim in, um, uh, you know, which is south of Tibet and sort of sandwiched between Nepal and Bhutan. Um, it's a northeastern state in India. And I come from a family of very strong Tibetan Buddhist practitioners, especially female practitioners. Uh, both my grandmother and my mother took their vows later in life. So I was basically raised uh, in a lot of wilderness areas, actually, mm -hmm. with my mother um, mm -hmm. and raised, you know, within the Tibetan Buddhist sort of culture and ethos. Right. Um, so. I didn't quite see a separation between myself and nature. And I was raised to see nature as being alive. You know, I, I sometimes tell the story about the importance of how um, indigenous worldviews matter to conservation and to climate movements, because we know that 80% of biodiversity that are intact today are managed and held by indigenous people. Okay. And so my example for that is always to talk about how I actually come from an area which um, has Mount Kanchenjunga, which is the third mm -hmm. tallest peak in the world, mm -hmm. but no one knows about it because it's not allowed to be climbed. Right. And so the indigenous people of Sikkim, the Bhutia, the Lepcha, you know, the Tsong, the Limbu, everybody that is there have been fighting local efforts, government efforts, you know, corporation efforts to basically turn this into a massive income generation kind of mm -hmm. program, because for us, he's alive. Right. He's the protective deity for Sikkim. And so. My first answer is, I'm not sure I ever saw a difference between my Buddhist philosophy, ethos, and upbringing, and then nature, right, and my love for wilderness. Um, but my second answer is, um, you know, I went on to study environmental science and environmental policy. I um, joined the World Wildlife Fund at 2000. 
um, and began working in community-based conservation very quickly in the Himalayas, and then went on to work um, in the Mekong region in Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, I, I've often said I was really successful at that point. I was the youngest program director at WWF, and, you know, I was a brown Himalayan woman that had kind of broken this the barrier, right, by getting to be an expert in a different geography than her own, mm-hmm. um, which is a particularly acute problem for people of color, which is you recognize an expert, but only if it's localized, right? right. Um, and so you would think I would be excited and happy. And actually, I was experiencing real grief mm-hmm. and some amount of trauma because what was dawning on me and which dawns on every environmentalist sooner or later is that the work I was doing wasn't happening quickly enough and wasn't large enough, right? In terms of scale and scope and nothing I as one person was doing could change this tide of climate disasters that basically I was seeing and mapping and projecting in my mind, right? Day in, day out, that was my work. and not knowing how to protect communities, not knowing how to convince governments, trying our best to come convince governments and private actors, but at the end of the day, of course, failing a lot more <laughs> than succeeding. Right. Um, and so I was just in this state of despair. Um, and my family does this annual pilgrimage to Bodh Gaya, which is uh, the the place where Buddha was enlightened. So it's sort of uh, pilgr- the main pilgrimage point for Buddhists. And His Holiness, the Karmapa, who's the head of my lineage, was there. He gave this teaching on vegetarianism and the environment. He was very young. like He, he was a very dedicated environmentalist. But um, he, I think part of the being very young also is he thinks out of the box. You know, he's quite revolutionary in his thinking. Um, for example, he's very strong about gender equality within the religion, right? Um Anyway, he gave this talk on vegetarianism and he tied it to climate change and he tied it to Buddhist ethics and a specific prayer that Tibetan Buddhists are taught very young. And the prayer basically says, may I benefit all sentient beings. And we say it day in, day out. It's the most common prayer we have that basically our belief is that we um, we exist And the purpose of our existence is to benefit others. So what he was saying to us was, you probably do this prayer. And everybody said, yes. You know, there are about roughly 10,000 people there. And he said, and yet you probably go to eat meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And everyone was saying yes. And he said, how? Think about it. Think about what that prayer means and that if you have the choice, if you, and he explained, if you don't have the choice and you are in you know, high altitudes where you don't get vegetables and fresh fruit, then yes, of course, you're dependent on meat. But if you do have the choice, why wouldn't you become a vegetarian? And it was like a light bulb went off in my mind because what I watched was thousands of people making the commitment to become vegetarian in that moment, right? And what I suddenly realized was, you know, how is it that it never occurred to me, the daughter of a religious leader, (laughs) that I could appeal to religious leaders and ask religious leaders to work on environmental problems. Like, it had just never occurred to me until that moment. 
Um, and so what I ended up doing, well, two things. So that, that's my big answer for how I combine those two things. But what ended up happening very karmically <laughs> um, was that I had a meeting with this homeless lo- long after, and he asked me if I would create environmental guidelines for the monasteries and the nunneries. And that is how Koryuk was born oh. without any, you know, without any design, any strategy in mind, it just sort of snowballed and snowballed. <laughs> so that's, that's how I ended up. I think not necessarily, you know, being introduced to faith and ecology, but more rather, I think, owning up to faith mm. and, ecology and the intersection of it. Right. Yeah. Right, right. It's been there the whole time, but you just hadn't really been owning up to it. I'm like, wait yeah. a second, the implications <laughs> are staggering. It was That's a great. Like, God, how have I been this stupid all this time? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was my feeling. How have I right. been so short-sighted? Yeah, it's like right in front of your face the whole time. You're like, no, but- how have I missed this? Yeah, and the universe is just like constantly giving you these messages and you're just not paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And then so that just kind of spontaneously emerges then. Uh, And what year was that? That was 2008. And so I developed, um, so I did, yeah, end of 2007. And then 2008, I he his owners basically asked me to work with several senior monks and nuns on the development of the guidelines. Um, and it was this very simple, very lovely um, booklet that explained why, you know, first of all, that talked about the major environmental issues right. in the Himalayas and in Tibet. And then it broke it down philosophically from a mm-hmm. Buddhist perspective for why Buddhists and monks and nuns should care. Um, and then provided simple solutions. And I, uh, when I agreed to do it, I really thought it was this one-off thing. Mm. It still hadn't come through in my mind that this could be its own program, right? Mm. I just thought, I'm going to do this booklet. But the response that we got back was so overpowering. You know, we had, I mean, emails after emails, phone calls, what's, everything was happening with the monks and nuns saying, can we get more? Can we get more? Can we get more? So very... Uh, just on the spot, I, I, his owner said, can you just do a training? And so on the spot, we did a six-day workshop breaking down, you know, climate change, breaking down, like, for example, the water cycle, right? right? The nitrogen cycle, like right. the carbon cycle, and really going through it um, from a scientific perspective, explaining to the monks and nuns who were gathered um, what, why it mattered. And what they could do about it. And, you know, I think 22 monasteries and nunneries sent their delegates that first time. It was just Mm -hmm. whoever happened to be in that place basically showed up. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had some very senior leaders, you know, um, who would be really well known in the trend of this community, but probably not to the audience here. But sort of Rinpoche's and Tukus who, who... signal their their support and backing and of course his oldness was there leading a couple of the sessions so from the very beginning again without design you know we had a model where the decision makers and the leaders are demonstrating to the community that they care and it's important to them on a personal level Um, and that ended up eventually just being my model for working with faith leaders and institutions 
was, you know, I know exactly what has worked in the Himalayas and I'm going to try and see if it works elsewhere, right? Um, but what emerged from that workshop was quite amazingly this united, unified desire among the senior monks and nuns that they wanted to do something. Not just they wanted to study it, but they wanted solutions that were tailored for them. And so we ended up doing um, a huge workshop that was basically just a solutions building workshop. Mm. Um, and that took, you know, again, that took all kinds of scientific solutions. Sorry, my dog is with me, as you know, in the background, so she might make some noise. Or she might just really like something we're talking about. <laughs> that's right. That's approval. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I I basically laid out every kind of solution you can think of, right? That someone can do, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's in order to adapt, whether it's in order to mitigate, whether it's in order to build a resilience, whatever it might be, right? Um and then the, the monks and the nuns in community would sit and discuss all of these and accept and reject them based on what they thought. And then come up with ideas that work for their community. You know, for example, gray water recycling was huge for them because every monk and nun has an altar where they offer water every single day. And so, you know, there were certain things that they would adapt very, very quickly. Right. Um, and I think we, we, ended up creating some uh, book of solutions called 108 Things You Can Do. Hmm. And if you look into it, it's sort of, you know, like this is what you can do for freshwater conservation. This is what you can do for freshwater pollution. This is, and it just offers a whole mix of very uh, specific to monastic solutions and that are also have a very strong um, scientific basis, right? So um, once we did that, I thought, again, the job is done. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. And actually, they came back and said, okay, great. We love this. We want to be an organization. <laughs> and, that's, and I was like, oh, I think this is going to end up more than what I was doing at that time, which was my vacation time, right? And I was like, oh, my God, this is turning into a movement. So that's whenever incredible. Say, I co-founded Koryu, or I helped set it up, you know, Oh, my apologies. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> you can hear something downstairs. <laughs> you cut that out. Um, so I think whenever, should I pause? And oh, no, it's fine. I appreciate it. If it wasn't about environmental issues, I'd say, get the animals out of here. But otherwise... Happy, happy to hear signs of uh, of other non-humans hanging out with us. Yeah, I can hear this uh, very loud engine outside my window. It's uh, my neighbor's motorbike, and it's setting her off. So, <laughs> um, anyway, so oh, and so that's that's basically when I paused and went to WWF and said, "Listen, have we ever considered?" actually working with faith leaders and institutions to address conservation issues. Like, mm. And I ended up, and it was happening simultaneously, actually, at that point, because that was 2000. And so around 2008, I had sent out a questionnaire. So, you know, WWF is the largest conservation group in the world, yeah. and they have um, offices in over 100 countries. So I had sent out this questionnaire to the field conservation directors, um, 
basically saying who is working with faith leaders and what is your experience and you know are you interested in it and trying to gather the experiences of my peers basically right who are all working in field conservation and the feedback I had gotten was really wonderful and unexpected Um, so I think I got something like 40 responses and two-thirds of them said they were really interested in doing it they had tried it what had worked so the response Mm. was unexpectedly intense Um, and so I had that information and because there had been previous or, or, you know, attempts to create faith-based conservation initiatives, WWF had helped set up the Alliance of Religions and Conservation in the UK, you know, Mary Evelyn and John, John were over at Yale. So I had access to people who had studied it and basically designed a framework for faith and ecology, right? Um, I, I called Mary Evelyn cold just just sort of cold called her and she gave me an hour on the spot. I mean, people were so generous with their time. Um, And so when I went to the WWF board, I was basically armed with all the facts (laughs) and the data that I needed um, to convince them to let me create sacred earth. And they were incredibly wonderful. So the sacred earth was basically a design. It was a pilot program trying to prove that faith-based conservation worked Mm -hmm. as a model, um, which it did very successfully. And I worked in five different places around the world with very different religious leaders, because Mm -hmm. what I was trying to show was that core yoga was not an anomaly. If you could apply a capacity building program, right, with these kinds of, um, with a similar design to the process of what I'd gone through with Koryu, that you could actually bring faith leaders to work with you on really critical conservation and climate initiatives. So I ended up, you know, working with uh, so multi-faith leaders in East Africa on uh, elephant and rhino poaching. I worked with the Catholic Church in the Vatican in the Amazon. I worked with um, Buddhist leaders, Theravada leaders in the Mekong in Thailand, um, and with reached out to and now work with evangelical leaders, although it didn't work that time um, in the United States. Hmm. And so what I was try- attempting to show again and again was it doesn't matter what the religion is. It doesn't matter what the geography is. As long as you can appeal to them based on their faith values, you know, about why the environment matters, why climate change is critical. Is it, These are religious issues. As long as we can speak their language, they will act. Um, and in all of these cases, of course, faith leaders did. And in some cases had been doing it already. And in some cases were really um, both shocked to find how terrible the problem was, um, very indignant um, mm. about how they hadn't been approached before. Um, and really energized to do something about it, where they felt it was part of their mandate, right? Um, their, you know, their God-anointed mandate. Like, I mean, there, there, there is this, they bring this kind of gravitas and sort of power to what they take on in a way that we in the science world are very leery of, right? <laughs> but we desperately need, we need them to actually reach the communities we don't have any access to. Right. right, people who don't believe in science or don't think scientists um, 
are asking them to make the right decisions or, you know, for whatever reason, aren't moved by science or governments or or NGOs, but will listen to their faith leader. Um, and so that was the model that Sacred Earth basically um, initiated at WWF and we ran it for five years very successfully. Thank you, Nikila. That's such a great story and actually only the beginning. So this will be uh, the first part of a two-part episode. So uh, we've talked about you know, the Sacred Earth Project with the World Wildlife Fund, but we have not yet talked about the LOCA initiative. So we'll be back next week uh, to hear more about that. And in the meantime, take care and be well.